Good morning. How are you doing? Outstanding. Good, good. It's great to be with you today. My name is uh, Jeff Surratt. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Seacoast. I want to welcome those of you who are in uh, the chapel or the warehouse or one of our other uh, campuses, or maybe you're joining us on the internet. We're glad you are along with us. Quick question as we get started. How many of you have ever seen a series on uh, TV called Survivor Man? Have you ever seen Survivor Man? A few of us have. The premise of Survivor Man is they take this guy and they take him out into the wilderness. Either maybe it's the middle of the desert or uh, a swamp or out uh, one time it was in Alaska out in the, in, the, in the cold and they just drop him out there with almost nothing. I mean, seriously, it's, it's craziness. They, he, the guy's got no cell phone. Uh, he has no Diet Coke and he, he can't watch the NASCAR races. I mean, I'm, I'm talking a redneck can never do this deal. In fact, all he's got, I think, is like a knife, a match, and one square of toilet paper. And that's his deal. And his mission, while he's out there, is to find food and shelter and basically survive for a week. That's why they call it Survivor Man. And he just does this over and over and over again. We're starting a new series this weekend called Outward Bound. And the, the uh, series is based on the book of Titus. And if you read the whole book of Titus, you'll realize that it has something a lot in common with Survivor Man. Because what happened is Paul took his youngest protege, Titus, and he dropped him on the Isle of Crete and left him there and said, dude, here's your mission. You're going to have to survive. You're going to have to do some things. And I'm just going to leave you with the bare essentials. And so that's what we're going to talk about this week and the next two weeks is kind of the Survivor Man, the Outward Bound Manual for Titus on the Isle of Crete. Um, the, the Isle of Crete is an interesting place. Uh, it's a large island, second largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, in fact, uh, I think we have a picture real quick of, of the island of Cyprus. Yeah, that was taken actually this week by Chuck and Lee Jackson, who pastor a seacoast home church on the island of Cyprus. Now, I know how pretty that looks, and it is beautiful, but in the ancient world, in Paul's time, uh, Cyprus was just kind of a rough place. Uh, the culture was just, they were just unique. Um, they, uh, to give you an example of how unique this culture was, uh, you know, in, in Greek culture, the, the top god, the main god was Zeus, okay? Everybody worshiped Zeus. Well, on Crete, they said they had Zeus's tomb. And if you wanted to come see Zeus's tomb, you could come there. That was a problem, you know? When everyone is worshiping this immortal God and one island says, no, he's not immortal, he's dead, he's right here. You want to come see his body, we got it. That, that, that caused some problems. In fact, uh, in, in the ancient Greek culture, they, they created a word based on the, on the island of Crete called kritizo. And kritizo means to lie. And uh, Paul quotes one of their poets, a guy named Epimenides, and this poet says of Cretans, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And that's where Titus, or Timothy drops Titus. Hang out with the liars, the lazy gluttons, the evil beasts, and I'll see you in a few years. We'll see how it works out for you. But he leaves him an instruction manual. Basically, the book of Titus is his knife, his match, and his, his square of toilet paper. This is his essential things that he needs. If you read the book, it's one of the shortest books that uh, Paul wrote. In fact, it is a total of 46 verses divided into three chapters. To give you a comparison, in Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, just the 15th chapter is 59 verses long. 
This whole book is 46 verses. And in this book, Paul says, here is everything you need to accomplish your mission on this really, really rough, in this really rough culture on the island of Crete. And so that's what we're going to do is take a look at that instruction manual and, and, and see what, how it applies to our life. So before we dive in, taking a look at it, would you pray with me real quick? <coughs> Father, thank you for this uh, chance this weekend to share. Lord, what an amazing privilege to teach your word. Lord, I thank you for your word. It's, it's clear. It's concise. It's, it's exactly what we need in our culture today. And so, Lord, I pray that you will speak through me, that I will be able to get out of the way. And, Lord, that your words will shine in the next few minutes. And, Lord, we ask it in your name. Amen. Now, on your outline sheet, you'll see uh, throughout the sheet, there's the whole first chapter of Titus is in there. I would recommend that if you have your Bible, that you just pop it open to Titus. It's back there right behind 2 Timothy. Or if you use an electronic Bible, take a look at that because it'll help you kind of catch the context of, of, of what we're talking about. But if we start in first, or in, I'm sorry, in Titus chapter one, uh, beginning with verse one, Paul starts out the book by explaining here's the purpose of the book. He says, "Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of, of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have in, uh, been entrusted by the command of God our Savior." To Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. That's it for Paul. That's all of the introduction. There's no uh, thanksgiving. There's no benediction. There's no prayers for Titus. That's the entire fluffy part of the book. The rest of it is down to the basics. Here's what you need to know. So he starts out with an introduction. Here's why I'm writing. The next thing he does is he gives Titus his assignment. He says, here's your assignment. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. This concept of putting into order is, the Greek is the same as setting a broken bone. And so Paul's saying, we've, we've started some churches in the different cities on this island, and now your job is to go put them into order, to, to fix what's broken, and, and get an, a churches established in each city on the island of Crete. And then he gives the rest of the book, he gives Titus what he needs in order to do his mission. Your mission is to put it in order. Chapter one, what you need are, uh, you, you need good leaders. Chapter two, you need sound doctrine. Chapter three, you need good works. And he says, that's what you need. He finishes up by saying, hey, everybody here says hi. Tell everybody hi for me. Bye. Good luck. You're on your own. So we're going to dive in with that first chapter, good leaders. Paul says this in verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, and to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Basically, to understand what Titus is up to is he's a missionary. You know, we have this concept of missionary, I do, or used to, that a missionary lives in a hut, and he wears kind of a khaki-looking thing with a pith helmet, and, and he wards off cannibals with his knife, you know, and tells people about Jesus. And that's what a missionary is. And, and there is some picture of that. But Paul really explodes that picture of being a, of a missionary. Titus is a missionary. What a missionary is, is it's anyone who is on mission from God in a foreign culture. And that's what Titus is. He is in a foreign culture. He's on mission from God. And his assignment is to find other missionaries, to appoint more leaders who will carry on the mission after Titus is gone. And so 
basically, we can call Titus, he's on mission, he's missional, which missional simply means to be on mission, which means you're on a mission from God, and he's a missional leader, and he's to appoint missional leaders. Paul calls them elders. Other places, Paul calls them bishops, sometimes presbyters. Uh, Often an elder is a specific um, office in a church. We have people at Seacoast we call elders. But I would submit that the definition of elder is bigger than that. It's not just a specific office. Because I think, as I have studied over the last few years, I think that God has called all of us to be missionaries. I think you're a missionary. I think I'm a missionary. What's a missionary? A missionary is someone who is what? On mission from God in a foreign culture. Well, take a look at First uh, Peter, what, how he describes a foreign culture. First Peter chapter 2 says... Dear friends, I urge you, urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. Peter describes the world as a foreign culture. We are aliens and strangers in the world. He says, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. And then that's our culture, the world. Here's our mission. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The truth is is that you're a missionary. You are on mission from God, whether it's in your home or your school or where you work or in your neighborhood or in your community, even in your church. You are on mission from God. You have been planted by God in a foreign culture. When you committed your life to Christ, you became a resident, you became a citizen of God's kingdom. And God said, but I'm going to plant you in your community and you are on mission from God sharing the good news of the gospel within your context. To kind of give you a better idea of what a missionary looks like in the 21st century, I want you to meet a missionary from Los Angeles. Take a look at this. Just one block east of downtown Los Angeles is one of the most dangerous, overlooked, marginalized, places in the United States of America, and that's Skid Row. Uh, Skid Row is a place where horrible things happen all the time. Women and children are the most vulnerable to the crimes, but you also have gang members and drug dealers who sell drugs near rescue missions and uh, hinder efforts to help people in the area. This is where I work. This is where God called me to be. And I believe that with my whole heart. You know, the reality here is most people don't really like police officers. They're taught to hate us because they feel we're after them because of their social status or race or whatever. It's really hard to meet somebody you really want to help and have them reject you. Some of them hate my guts. And I really, truly, honestly care about them. I try to look at people the way I think God looks at people and in spite of all our mistakes God still loves us so in spite of all the mistakes that a lot of the people in Skid Row have made I want to show them I love them and I want to help make their lives better you got to get out of your car sometimes remove your judgmental idea about who people are and what a good person should be you know and get out there and get to know these people because you'll find it even though some of them have a lot of problems Severe problems, mild problems, they're people. Let me feel them. 
They're told the police hate you. But I destroy that theory when I get out in that street because those folks will test you. If you say you care, they're going to hold you up to it. Okay, Joseph, you care? Put me in some housing. Dion. Yes, Dion. Yeah. If you're interested in some 90 day housing? Yes, yes. Okay. What I want you to do is Thursday, go see my friend. She's, okay. a, she's a wonderful lady. Over time, the people see you for who you are, not what you are. They know I'm doing what I'm doing, not to harass them, but because I'm for them. All right? We'll do both. All right, ladies. Take care. Hey, how are you? You know, you're a star. How you doing? Because you love this kid around me. I do, I do. Get to know people on an individual basis. I know their names. I know when they've been sober. I know when they're high. People always ask me, how can you work here? How could you sit here all this time? My faith in God is what keeps me from packing up and leaving town. This is my assignment. It's like a driving force that keeps me having faith in this community. You know, that says, don't let him go yet, Dion. Don't let him go. So that's Dion's mission field, Skid Row in Los Angeles. I want you to think about what is your mission field? Where has God planted you? And what's your mission? Because everyone who professes Christ as their Savior, I believe, has been called to be a missionary, to be a missional leader. What Paul does with the rest of this first chapter of Titus is he gives us two pictures, the picture of a great missional leader and the picture of a miserable missional leader. So that's what we're going to look at. First of all, the great missional leader. We'll pick it up with verse 6. Paul says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's a great missional leader. Let's break it down a little bit. Paul talks about being above reproach. And I think there's about three areas that he refers to about being above reproach. A great missional leader is above reproach at home. At home. He says that a great missional leader should be the husband of one wife. Now, there's been a lot of talk through the years in the church about exactly what does this mean. Does Paul mean that only men can be elders? Does he mean that only those who've never been divorced can be elders? If you look at the Greek, the original Greek there says a one-woman man. And I think what Paul was really drilling down to is that you, if you are going to be what God called you to be, a great missional leader, then you will be faithful to your family. You will be someone that your family can count on. They know that your word is good. They know that you are going to stay, that you are going to be there, that if you promise something, you'll carry through with it, and that you're not out in the workplace or on Facebook or someplace else 
with your emotions out in places that they shouldn't be. Your family knows you are there. You are faithful. You can be counted on. The next thing Paul says about a family is he says that the children should be believers and that uh, they should not be open to charges of debauchery or insubordination. What Paul is saying there is that a great missional leader is responsible for their family. They know that their family's spiritual life, their family's connection with God is their responsibility. It's not the school's responsibility. It's not the church's responsibility. It's their personal responsibility. I believe we will be held accountable by God to how we built into our family, especially as it comes to their relationship with God. See, as as we were raising our kids, we saw the church um, not as responsible for the spiritual life of our children, but we saw the church as an amazing tool to help us in carrying out our responsibility. And so we utilized everything the church offered. When our kids were young, they went to Kids Coast. When they got older, they were in uh, the youth group. They were a part of youth small groups. When they were old enough, they began to serve in different capacities. Um, My daughter started playing the guitar when she was very young in groups. So did my son. And they became small group leaders. And that wasn't on accident. We encouraged it. We uh, even required some of that. And the reason we did is because in the end, you know who's going to be responsible? I'm responsible. Now, when they become old enough, it's up to them whether they accept Christ or reject him. But I am responsible for, did I do everything I could? Did I utilize every tool at my disposal to help make sure that my children are connected with God? And it amazes me, honestly, when I see families who don't utilize the tools that the church offer. That's surprising to me because someday you're going to stand before God and give an account for how you were responsible to your family. And part of that is going to be, well, I didn't really feel the church was that important. Um, you know, the kids didn't really want to go, so we, we didn't make them go. Sometimes we would just take like the summer off because, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in the summer. And okay, that's fine. But did you do everything you could to make sure your kids were connected with God? Tell me about how that worked in your life. And so what Paul is saying here is that a, a great missional leader is faithful to their family and they recognize that they're responsible for their family. They're above reproach in those areas. And then Paul continues uh, talking about being above reproach. He says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or, or, a drunkard or violent or greedy for, for gain. I think what Paul is saying here is a great missional leader is above reproach at work or in public at school, whenever they're not at home, they're above reproach. And he lists several things to kind of look at on your personal list. How am I doing in these areas? The first thing he says is a great leader is not arrogant. He's a humble person. The way to find that out is how do the people around you, your coworkers, the people who work for you, the people you work for, people you go to school with, your teachers, would they describe you as a humble person? Would they describe you as someone who's more concerned about the team than they are about personal recognition? That's what Paul is talking about, not being arrogant. The next thing he says is a great leader is not quick-tempered. You know, I've heard people say, you know, a, a short fuse just runs in my family. My, the ethnic group I come from, I'm, I'm, I'm Irish or I'm Italian, or you pick the ethnic group, and we're just a quick-tempered people. We just have short fuses. 
And I get that. I understand that. I come from a family of short-tempered people. Uh, my grandfather was an angry man. Back in the 1930s, my, how do I say this in a, in, a, in a positive way? My grandfather ran, he ran a home brewing business, okay? Is that, do you understand what I'm saying? And in operating his, he was an entrepreneur, and in operating his small business, a competitor one day uh, actually came and took some of his supplies from his home brewery operation out in the middle of the woods. And my grandfather happened to, he was headed to the office, and on his way to the office through the woods, he uh, came upon the competitor walking away with some of his, we'll just call it toner, okay? Taking some of his toner. My grandfather's response was to pull out a gun and shoot him. And that's what he did. He shot him. And the other guy responded by shooting back. Fortunately, neither of them were good shots and they just winged each other. And so my grandfather didn't go to prison for the rest of his life. That was the natural reaction of a Serac. My father, when he was younger, he was an angry man. One time when I was young, my father had a dispute with a local small businessman. My father felt like the businessman was possibly charging him in a way that wasn't ethical. And so my dad offered to do a amateur facial reconstruction for the man. <laughs> You'll figure that out on the way home. That's being punched in the face is what that means. That comes very naturally to me. My grandfather was angry. My dad was angry. I fight with anger. Anger is my natural reaction. I mean, my fuse goes like this. But as a missional leader called by God, it is my responsibility to deal with that anger and to find a positive way to channel that anger. It, I can't just say, well, I have a short fuse. I'm sorry. It's, that's just how I am. I don't have that uh, 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 luxury. And whatever your weakness is, whether it's anger or it's lust or, or, or whatever it is, as missional leaders, we deal with that. And the Bible says that in Christ, we can, do, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We can deal with those natural weaknesses that are in our personality. Paul says not to be uh, quick-tempered. The next thing he says is not to be a drunkard. And it's interesting, through Titus, alcohol comes up several times through Titus. So there seems to be some significance to how we use alcohol in relation to being a missional leader. And here's the deal. It's easy to approach alcohol from a legalistic standpoint in a way that says no, no Christians, no leaders, no, no one in this particular office should ever drink alcohol at all. That's an easy answer. A difficult answer is to say what is wise. And, and here's how you decide that. What is my mission? What has God called me to do? What is the context of that mission? Within the context of that mission, my use of alcohol, how I use alcohol, does it impede what God wants me to accomplish? And if it does, then what's going to win? My freedom or my mission? So what Paul is saying is if alcohol in any way, however you use it, is impeding your mission, then you need to step back and rethink it, not to be a drunkard, not to be quick-tempered, not to be arrogant. The next thing he says is not to be violent. Violence is, is basically if people are afraid of you, if in your home your children are afraid or your spouse is afraid or in your work, your coworkers or the people who work for you, if they are afraid of you, there's something wrong. There's a violence in your character that needs to be dealt with. And then the last thing Paul says is not greedy for gain. He says that a missional leader should not be greedy for gain. What does he mean? He means they shouldn't be driven by profit. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with profit. There's nothing wrong with a Christian business person making a profit or uh, earning money, earning more money. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Again, the question is, what is your motivation? If your motivation, if your driving force is to get a bigger pile, to get more toys, to rack up some wins, then Paul says, that's not the deal. The motivation should be, what is my mission? How can I expand that mission? And if while I'm on mission, I also make a profit, that's awesome. That, that, that gives me resources for my family. It gives me resources for my mission. It gives me resources to give away. That's been phenomenal, but not to be driven by a desire for gain. Uh, Howard Schultz is the CEO of Starbucks. And he said this, success is not sustainable if it is defined by how big you become or by growth for growth's sake. And then Paul says that a great missional leader is above reproach in his family. He's above reproach in public at work. And he's also above reproach in, in private. First Timothy 1.8 in the New Century Version says it this way, an elder must be ready to welcome guests Love what is good, be wise, live right, and be holy and self-controlled. Give six signs of a healthy private life. Ready to welcome guests. In the ancient world, this was very, very important because they didn't have hotels. They didn't have restaurants. So when you traveled, you were relied on the, on the hospitality of strangers. And Paul said, as Christians, we should be the most hospitable people of all. He says, you should be ready to welcome guests. Love what is good. Be wise live right, holy, and self-controlled. Great checklist of how am I doing privately as a missional leader. So Paul says, be above reproach in your family life. Be above reproach in public. Be above reproach in your private life. And then finally, he says that as a great missional leader, we have to be willing to do the hard work of leading. It's easy to sit on the bench it's easy to criticize. It's easy to see what other people are doing wrong. But Paul says that if you're going to lead as a missional leader, you have to be willing to step up. He says leading means sticking. Or I'm sorry, let me read the verse. He must hold firm to the trustworthy... Uh, I'm sorry, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. First of all, leading means sticking to the truth even when it's tough. Sometimes we are just challenged to compromise and to soften what we know to be true. Paul says a real leader, a missional leader, sticks to the truth. Leading means teaching the truth to others, even when they won't, don't want to hear it. Sometimes we just have to share the truth. And the third thing is leading means rebuking others when they stray from the truth. You see, it's easy to duck those things and just kind of slide along. It's also easy to become very arrogant and very harsh and very judgmental. That's, that's not hard to do. What's hard is in love because you care so much for people that you find a way to humbly come to them and say, let me talk to you about what I see going on in your life. Let me talk to you about what is really true. Let, let, let's look at what God says about this and to be willing to rebuke in times that you have to. So Paul says that's what a great missional leader looks like. Now he turns his attention to what a miserable missional leader looks like. And in our own lives, we need to do a couple of things. One, we need to be constantly checking our life against that checklist we just went over. How am I doing? None of us are perfect. We all have areas where we need to grow. And then as we look at this checklist, the miserable list, am, am I doing any of this stuff? And at the same time, what about the leaders that I follow? 
What about the leaders that I lead? Are they great missional leaders or miserable missional leaders? We need to have our eyes open. So take a look at Paul's description of a miserable missional leader. It begins with verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Their testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul gives us a real description of a miserable missional leader. The first things that he describes is arrogance. He talks about insubordination, refusing to be under authority. Every leader should be under authority, both lead and follow. He talks about being empty talkers and being deceivers. The reality is that missional leaders are humble servants. Tim Keller, who's a a great uh, uh, author and pastor, he says that as we are exposed to to the eternal truth, the ultimate truth of the Bible, it should make us more humble, not more arrogant. If we find arrogance in leaders, our antenna should go up and say, wait a minute, something, something's not quite right here. The next thing uh, Paul says about mission, uh, miserable missional leaders is they distort the gospel. He refers to the circumcision party, which, by the way, would, would that be the worst party ever? I mean, seriously, I mean, you get an invitation to the circumcision party, you're like, I, I'm busy, I'll pass. <laughs> Sorry, that was cheap, but it is funny. Um, See, what was happening in Paul's time is Paul was going and preaching the simple gospel to people, and people were committing their lives to to Christ, following Christ. And then people were coming behind Paul saying, that's awesome, great, you committed your life to Christ, fantastic. Now all you have to do is be circumcised, and then you'll be a full Christian. And it it just drove Paul crazy. Because these people were setting up barriers to Christianity to being Christ followers that Christ never set up. Paul said, no, 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 no. The gospel is very, very simple. You believe in your heart that Christ was raised from the dead and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord of your life and you will be saved. Now, that's the beginning point. And as you grow, as he said at the beginning of Titus, as you grow, you will become more godly and that godliness leads to eternal life. But... The gospel is simple. There's no add or subtract to the gospel. And when you see a miserable missional leader, they are adding or subtracting to the gospel. Let me, let me tell you a couple of ways, a couple of places you see this. And, and watch for this. Watch for it in me. Watch for it in the leaders at Seacoast. If you listen to podcasts, if you read books of other pastors, other leaders, if you watch television pastors, Watch for these things. One add-on to the gospel that you come across is legalism. Legalism says that here are a list of rules. Do these things, don't do these things. If you do these and don't do these, then you'll be a Christian. And that's legalism, and that's adding to the gospel, and it's wrong. So watch for it. 
The other thing to watch for that's very popular right now is the idea that if you will come to Christ and you will do things the right way, you'll say the right prayer or you'll read the right scripture over and over again or you'll follow uh, uh, this example or you'll send this offering in, then you're going to get material wealth here on earth. You're going to get a better car and you're going to get a bigger house and and, and God's just going to multiply your resources because you're doing things the way you're supposed to do them. And that is wrong, okay? Some people are blessed with material blessings and that is phenomenal. But God blesses who he blesses. There are other people who are sincere Christ followers who are not blessed with material blessings. People that maybe you've heard of, uh, a guy named the Apostle Paul. Another guy who was a pretty good Christian, did a good job with what he had. He was called Peter. Remember him? He died poor. And then there was a guy who was really good at this whole deal named Jesus who didn't even have a place to live, okay? So here's the deal with the gospel. Here's the deal. I I just want to make sure we're clear. I was a sinner from birth. My ultimate destination was eternity away from God in hell. Jesus came and just because he loved me on no good of my own, he died on a cross which gave me an opportunity to have my sins washed, cleansed, taken away, forgiven. And I now have eternity in heaven ahead of me. That is good news. Here in this short time on earth, which is this much of my eternal life, I may have a lot of stuff. I may have a little stuff. I may not have any stuff. It doesn't matter a hill of beans because life is about eternity. And my job, my mission on life is to share that good news with other people. That's why I'm here. That's why he didn't pick me up and take me to heaven as soon as I committed my life to him. He left me here so I could tell other people about the good news. Here's the deal, gang. When I begin to think that the gospel is about me getting stuff, then what is the gospel about? It's about me. It becomes self-focused. And that is, it's the opposite of what Jesus taught us. He taught us that we are servants, that we are to serve, that we are care. It's about other people. And so my soapbox today is if you, when you see legalism or you see uh, uh, prosperity or you see anything added to the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, your antenna need to go up and go, wait a minute. Is this truly a great or a miserable missional leader? The last thing that Paul says about a miserable missional leader is he says that they are greedy for gain that they're greedy for gain, that they're teaching. How does he say? He says, uh, uh, they are teaching for shameful gain. The question here is, what is the leader's motivation? Is their motivation to share the gospel with as many people as possible? Or is their gospel, or is their motivation to get more stuff for themselves? Now, if in being a missional leader, God decides to bless with material, that's awesome. That's great. That's cool. That's God's deal, okay? And if the motivation is to lead in a way that sees the kingdom expand and the most people come to know Christ, and there's material stuff that comes in, that's great. It's up to God. It's God's deal. How do you know what the motivation is? Well, one of the ways, and this, this can become very judgmental, but when you start seeing lots and lots of bling for missional leaders, I mean, like, you know, stuff that's like, wait a minute. I mean, lots of luxury houses all over the country and private 
private airplanes and gold toilets and, you know, I mean, lots and lots of bling. doesn't necessarily mean they're way off track, but it does mean, wait a minute, are they arrogant? Because if they're arrogant and if they're adding to the gospel and they're um, in it for themselves, Paul says they're miserable. Here's the reason. You see, what has happened in America is this consumer-oriented Christianity has, has sprung up. And a consumer-oriented Christianity says, it's about me. Jesus is a wonderful addition to my life. And he's a great accessory. He's the fix-it God. If I'll go to him, he'll fix it. And he'll give me stuff and, and it'll be great. And, and it's, it's turned us into consumers. And we sit in the chair And we come and we think, feed me, feed me, give me, give me, because it's about me and that's what it's about. And that's the opposite of the Christianity, of the the life that Jesus described. He said what? Take up your cross and follow me. He said you have a mission to be on, just like Jesus had a mission to be on and to follow me. Paul says that people who lead us into that consumer Christianity, here's how he describes, here's what he says about them. He says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So our job is this. Our job is first, what am I doing? How am I doing as a missional leader? And second, how about the leaders that I'm following? Are they teaching the true gospel? Are they there to expand the kingdom? Or is there something else going on? The reality is, You're a missionary. You are a missional leader. You are on a mission from God in a foreign culture. In your home, in your neighborhood, in your community, at work, at school, you're on mission. How are you doing? Are you above reproach with your family? Are you you above reproach at work? Are you above reproach in your private life? Are you asking God, God, I want to do the hard thing work of being a missional leader. I don't want to skate by. I don't want to be another person who just shows up, sits in the seat, sees what's in it for me, and just moves on with their life. I want to be that person who says, you know what, count on me. I'm going to lead. I'll lead one. I'll lead two. I'll lead five. I'll lead a hundred. Whatever level I'm at, I will lead people to a relationship with Christ. Let me pray with you. Father, the temptation is just to be judgmental and to point the finger at others and say, why aren't they? Why aren't they? But the reality is, is the person I'm responsible for is me. So, Lord, I pray that you will just drive this true and home in my heart, in each of our hearts, as people are listening. Lord, if there are those who don't have a relationship with you, Lord, that they would be willing to cross over and find out what it's like to have the promise of eternal life with you, sins forgiven, clean. Lord, for the rest of us who have committed our lives, Lord, make our mission clear. Help us to see that we're not just skating through life, that we're just not just getting by from day to day. We're not just accumulating prizes and stuff, but that we're on mission from you. And Lord, that every day that we'll be your missionaries in our world. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.